in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. It's a familiar passage, but we're going to talk about some things uh, here today that you uh, may not uh, have realized uh, about this passage. But um, the gist of what Jesus is trying to get through here is he's trying to help people understand that it's important to count the costs before you act. It's important that you realize what you're getting into before you get into it. For example, all of us who have ever signed a mortgage, we have gone over every single line in that mortgage agreement, haven't we? We've read every single word, haven't we? I remember signing my first mortgage, you know, 20-something years ago or whatever, and signing it on that dotted line and saying, I feel like I have just given away my first child, second child, third child, any future generations, and that at any moment uh, I'm going to be thrown out, uh, you know, in a pasture somewhere uh, because I have no idea what I'm agreeing to because I don't understand it, you know. But that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's saying, make sure you know what you're getting into before you make that decision to be able to follow him. Because one thing that we have to realize, it's absolutely free for us to be able to accept the gift of salvation, but yet it costs us everything. That is a weird struggle. We don't have to do anything to be able to earn it. It's free, it's paid for. Jesus did that on the cross. And by, as we talked about, confessing him as Lord, accepting forgiveness, believing that he died on the cross, rose again on the third day, all of that for us, we can have that relationship with him. But yet that confession of lordship has something. And that's why, again, here a few weeks ago, when the last time I taught, why I, again, will say it again, I can't recommend pastor study on the book of James enough of what does it mean to have the right kind of faith that's a saving faith. It's not a faith that's a belief and just a belief, but it's a belief that is so strong and so meaningful that it causes action. And it causes action not to be able to earn or to be able to keep your salvation, but as a way to be able to say, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord, and I want to live my life as a thank you to you because I believe what the Bible says, that you came to give us life. And the Bible calls it, and Jesus said, life to the fullest or the abundant life. But you got to really believe Christ on that. And we have to go through this daily process of what, is, what does it mean of picking up our cross and following him, of denying self. We're going to talk about some of those details today. you got to count the cost. I don't know if y'all have ever heard about the Darwin uh, Awards. They've been going on now for uh, many years. It is an unofficial kind of award thing that they um, uh, uh, award to people every year who are the stupidest people that they can find on the planet. Okay? And what it is... Uh, do what? Who take themselves out. That's exactly right. The stupidest people on the planet who take themselves out. One of the most interesting ones that I've ever come across, and sometimes you have to go and uh, use some of those fact-checking websites. What is it called? Like uh, Snopes, 
uh, and some of these other things to be able to check out some of these things that really happened. And this is one that I went back and checked out. But in 2008, there was this British vacationer named David Monk, and he won uh, the uh, third or fourth runner-up for the Darwin Awards that year. And what this British vacationer did is he was vacationing in the Italian Alps, but the ski lodge that he was at at this particular time was closed. But this guy had a great idea. He thought that he would take uh, and make himself his own sled or toboggan. So at the bottom of the slope, he took off padding that was around a pole that was on a ski lift, okay? Took that padding to the top of the run, got on it, slid all the way down, and ran smack dab into the pole where the padding was taken off that he used for his sled, and then his injuries killed him. That's a guy who did not count the cost of what he was doing. Some of us would think, okay, well, if I'm going to take the padding off of a ski lift pole, I probably don't want to go down the run where that pole is. I probably want to choose a different run. Well, that guy didn't do it, and he did not count the cost. Well, Jesus in Luke 14, 25 through 35, tells a crowd of people who are following him to really count the cost of what it means to be able to follow him and what he's asking him to do. Someone who, not, who has not accepted Christ has to come to grips with this. What does it mean to be able to truly follow Christ? What does it mean to know that we don't have to earn anything, we don't have to do anything to accept this free gift of salvation, as it talks about in Ephesians 2 and other places? But yet at the same time, it costs us everything because we have to deny self and say that Jesus is Lord overall, including our life and our decisions, instead of us getting to choose all that we want to do. And also, this is a continual thing that we as Christians have to be really, really mindful of because sometimes the very thing that Jesus is trying to teach us is a cost of discipleship that we're forgetting that we have to pay. And it's not a cost that is detriment to our character or a cost that is detriment to the fun or the enjoyment in our lives. It is a cost to enable us to be able to have the freedom, to be able to have the abundant living, to be able to have the joy of what it means to live our lives in right relationship with God. I've had youth pastors in, uh, in my past explain it this way, and it is an illustration I've never forgotten. It's kind of like if you were to take a group of preschoolers and put them in the middle of Highway 75 on the absolute best playground you could absolutely find. I don't know if y'all have been, I'm sure you're familiar with Celebration Park over here in uh, Allen. It has one of the best playgrounds I think I've ever seen. They've got a splash pad. They've got this huge playground, all these slides, all these jungle gyms, you know, all this other stuff for them to be able, for the kids to be able to hang and do things on. Well, um, imagine that was put in the middle on the median of Highway 75 with all of this type of traffic and stuff around it. And what psychologists and others have said is that if, if they were to do that, what you would see is the kids would not be out there enjoying all the things that are on the playground. 
they would be scared half to death by all these crazies whizzing by at 90 miles an hour right next to where their playground equipment is, and they would be huddled up in the center to be able to stay away from all the danger. But if you took that same playground and you were able to put a wall around it to be able to protect them from all the craziness and all the stuff outside, then those kids would go out, they would venture out, and they would enjoy all the freedom and all the joy that's there. Very similar to how the Christian life is. Do we have freedom to be able to do everything? Oh, yes. But not everything that we have to do in our freedom is beneficial. The Bible talks about it like that. Paul talks about that when he's talking about food, you know, presented before idols, being able to do all these things, about how, yes, I am free to be able to do these things, but at the same time, is it beneficial for me? Jesus gives us parameters in living not to steal our fun, but to protect us. What does it mean to be able to live in a covenant marriage with our spouse? Well, Jesus outlines that out and helps us see what that is. Not to ruin our lives or to try to take the fun out of it, but to help us experience life to its fullest. It's given us a boundary. He's trying to protect us from the evil and some of the things that are out in the world. But we think sometimes that, that the Lord and that Christ and that the Bible is trying to limit us. It's not. It's trying to set us free and trying to protect us. And that's what it means to be able to count the costs. So this morning we're going to look at Luke 14, 25 through 35 and see what these costs are to follow Jesus. There are some costs that are pretty heavy. And this is some film study that I'm going to ask you to do today in your life as we begin this fall semester of school, as we begin this uh, uh, football season as all of these new things are beginning to go on all around us it's a great time for us to be introspective and to see how well how closely are we following Christ in all that we do Luke 14 25 says this now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is even able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you of how it has come to be able to set us free. Set us free 
to be able to live the abundant life, the best life that there is to live here on this earth, and that's in right relationship with you. Fathers, we go through this passage today and look at some film study and be introspective on how well, how close we are uh, to you at this point. Father, I pray that you will bring to mind those areas in our lives that we need to get more in line with what it means to be like Jesus. Father, in those areas where we need to accept forgiveness, I pray that we will be very mindful to confess that sin to you. If we need to go to a fellow brother or sister in Christ or others and ask forgiveness, I pray you will give us the courage and the ability to do that. And Father, I pray that as we get ourselves right, that you will empower and strengthen us to be able to live this abundant life and to help us be more like you each and every day so that we can truly be that which you want us to be. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Well, we see several costs here of what it means to be able to follow Christ. The first cost that we see in this passage is the cost of hate. The cost of hate. And this is when hate is considered good. One of the things that we see in verse 26 is that Jesus uses the word hate in a way that makes us a little uncomfortable because he's telling us to be able to hate our moms and dads, hate our children, hate our wives, hate all of these things to be able to follow him. And we hear that in our English language and we think, wow. What does that mean? What does that mean to hate? Well, one of the things that we need to, to realize here, guys, is that Jesus is using a very common Jewish Semitic term uh, and I guess you can say phraseology that was very common in the Middle East during this time. We all have used exaggerations like, I have told you, I mean, well, no, let me backtrack. We have been told a million times, that we need to go take out the trash or do something else. Not that I'm saying that our wives have told us things like that before or that you have been told things like that before or I was told things like that yesterday. But what I'm saying is is that we have all of these things that we're familiar with from the standpoint of exaggeration and other things to be able to make a point of how much Something needs to be done. Well, one of the common things that happen in language of this day and time is that people would use the word hate in the way that it's translated from the Greek of this time into English um, is with that word hate. But the meaning of that word in Greek in that, uh, in, in that society is that they use that word to be able to say lesser than, Okay. It was something to be able to say, this is something that is supposed to be lesser than. And they use that word to be able to make a point that it's supposed to be lesser than. Okay, And so as we're seeing this, the cost that we see that Jesus is saying, he said that we are not supposed to look at our mom and dads and say, I hate you, mom because we all know the next thing that we would do is that we would probably have to you know, go like that because mom would slap us or dad would come down on us or things like that. That's not what he's talking about. 
what Jesus is saying, that you have to be more committed to him and his ways than doing what your family and their ways want you to do. I've never seen this more in my life than one of the youth workers I had when I was first a youth pastor uh, up in Oklahoma right after I graduated from college. There was a guy who was one of my middle school uh, large group teachers uh, who worked for this organization at that time called Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if you're familiar about the Christian organization that's called Voice of the Martyrs, but basically what they do is they help people who are in persecuted areas of the world um, who have uh, violence and other types of open persecution coming against Christians. They go there to be able to equip and train uh, underground pastors. And when I say underground, I mean that people who are not out in the open, that they're a pastor pastoring a church. Uh, we're talking areas uh, in China, uh, areas of Southeast Asia, in Muslim countries, uh, not only in the Middle East, but also in Africa, China, uh, at this time, uh, it was just right after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so there was a still a lot of, uh, of really difficult things going on in Eastern Europe uh, and in um, the former Soviet Union. And what this guy basically was, was a commando for God. Unbelievable. He would go into some of these areas and literally he would parachute out of the back of a C-130 like you see... Uh, uh, some of our military do uh, when they go, or our airborne troops or whatever. And he would parachute into areas of the jungle in Vietnam and in places in uh, Central Africa. And he would be loaded down with a pallet and other things of Bibles, Christian literature, and other things like that. And he would link up with underground pastors and underground churches in those areas to encourage them and to let them know that the greater Christian world has not forgot about them. You know, Kevin couldn't tell me all the areas and places of where he was going and what he was doing, but he told me there were some times that he very, very reluctantly had to look at his wife, had to look at his small kids, not knowing if he'd ever see them again. But then he would go on to describe the call that Jesus had put on his life to not forget those who were suffering for Christ's sake all around the world about how just a page or even a, just a book of the Bible was so revered and so well guarded that people would be willing to literally take a bullet, take a sword in the gut, get their head chopped off, have parts of their body removed to try to be able to make them talk about where a page of the Bible or where even a book of the Bible is kept. And he said, and he would tell me, well, I, I just, I can't forget those people. That's when I learned what it means to be able to love Christ more and love your family and things less. Now, Kevin loved his wife. He loved his kids. He loved his church that he was involved in. He loved those middle school students that he spoke to every time he was in town within our student ministry. And let me tell you, those students listened to him, glued to him teaching and talking about stories and things that he had and the people he would come in contact with in his ministry. But Kevin knew what it meant to be able to love Christ more. 
and his own personal safety. God doesn't call everybody to that. But he does call us to follow him. And what does it mean to follow him? It means that we're willing to follow Christ more than we are willing to be able to keep our jobs. What does that mean? Sometimes you may be at a job. You may be put in a spot where you may have to break the law. Maybe mail fraud or something. And you know that if you do what your boss has told you to do, that you'll commit mail fraud and that you could have this whole thing probably slung up around your neck because you're probably the guy that everybody is setting up to pin it on if something happens. But you also know that you're struggling with finances at home, that the kids need doctors. You've got this mortgage. You've got other things that you need to pay off. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have to do what's right. And that means you have to love and trust Jesus more than what it means for you to be able to keep and hold on to that job. You have to be willing to be able to say, Jesus, I trust you and the witness that I have in this world to do what's right more than I have in my own security on what I think that I've got in this job for my finances, for other things. That's what it means to be able to be willing to follow Jesus more than anything else, that you're truly willing to lay it all in his hands. Men, I ask you this. If you were at your job here in the next hour and you found out that you were asked to be able to commit a crime or lose your job on behalf of your company, would you be willing to be fired or resigned right there on the spot and walk away from it all knowing that you've got all these bills, all these needs, all these things at home that you have no idea how your needs are going to be met. Are you willing to do that? We're not at that point in the United States yet that they are in other countries where people will put a gun to your head and say, renounce Jesus or die. But these types of things are things that we're faced with at, at work sometimes is to be able to be challenged. Do we do things to be able to harm our Christian witness that we know that we're being asked to do that are wrong or are we willing to be able to lay it in Christ's hands and let him take care of us? That is the difficulty for us as Americans that we have. We've got to count the costs. Are you willing, truly willing, to be able to love Christ more than you love your own security? We also see a cost here in the cost of the cross. In verse 27, Jesus talks about this cost of the cross. What he says is that he says to be his follower, you've got to be willing to carry your own cross and come after him. Okay. Now, if you remember back to when Jesus was uh, 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 given the sentence of crucifixion uh, by the Roman government and that he had to carry his crossbeam through the streets. That was a common practice for anybody that was receiving corporal punishment of crucifixion in that day and time in the Roman Empire. What they would have to do is they would take the crossbeam that their hands were nailed to and they would have to parade it through the streets. That in and of itself was one of the most uh, shameful, horrible things that 
you could go through as you go through that process of getting to the actual place of execution. Because what do we know that happened to Jesus as he was going through that? People beat him. People pulled out the whiskers uh, that are in his beard. And we all know how painful that is. They did all of these things to him while he was trying to carry this heavy cross beam. That's the picture that he's trying to get toward to his followers. You must be willing to go through the shame that Jesus went through, the pain that Jesus went through, the agony that he went through to be a follower of him. It doesn't mean that you just have your cross to bear because your neighbor likes throwing their trash in your yard. And some people ask, well, why is all this trash in your yard all the time? Well, you know, my neighbor throws all these wild parties and then they you know, like to throw their banana peels and beer cans and all this other kind of stuff in their yard. It's just my cross to bear. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. Imagine if today, anytime that anybody was executed in Huntsville, that they had to go through the streets of Huntsville dragging the death gurney with them. And everybody in Huntsville, Texas, was all lined up right along Main Street throwing things at them, making fun of them, doing all this other kind of stuff while they were trying to drag the very death gurney that they were going to be strapped to where those chemicals were going to be put into their veins to kill them. That's similar to what he's talking about. You've got to be willing to be able to experience these things, the cost of the cross. Are you willing to truly die to yourself to continuing to die to yourself every single day. Jesus illustrates this, why someone must truly count the costs. And he's telling them it's a wise thing to do. In verses 28 through 30, he says, the, talks about the man who builds the tower. That's about somebody who's in construction. You know, have y'all uh, seen the Brinkman Ranch over here, do y'all know the story about the Brinkman Ranch on 720 and Preston Road over here? And that house where it's got, you know, some of the metal studs and things going up, and it's just one of those things of what in the world has gone on there? Well, basically, they ran out of money. They couldn't get, grab all the money together. There was all this divorce. There was all this, this kind of wrestling with the property and the ranch and all this other kind of stuff. And they said, you know what? We can't afford this. We, we're just not going to do it. And it looks absolutely silly to have the start of this beautiful mansion on this beautiful ranch property there, and it's been sitting like that for years. That's what, that's what he's saying. How silly does that look to say that you're going to go and build something, lay the foundation, and never complete it? How silly did that look over here where the Sheridan is over here in McKinney? Y'all remember when they first started building that, and then all of a sudden they just stopped? And they had the, the beginnings of that hotel that was going to be a hotel high-rise. I don't know if you followed it in McKinney City politics, but it was a huge deal for the city of McKinney. It made them look really, really bad because of all these things, the agreements and things. But then when the downturn in the economy happened back in 2006, 2007, they couldn't build a hotel anymore. And basically, McKinney was stuck with this construction project that was going anywhere. It made the city look bad. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, you got to be prudent. You've got to be able to count the cost before you build this and, and follow him just like a man who is in construction. And then he also compares it in verse 31 and 32 to a king and his army. It's basically saying, what king goes out and picks a fight 
that he knows that he can't win. And then he goes on to explain, well, if he finds himself in that situation, is he not going to send out a peace delegation to try to be able to manage the peace before he goes out there and sees his army and his kingdom and everything obliterated? He's using common things that people knew of the day to illustrate what does it mean to count the costs and how matter-of-fact that it is. These are great illustrations that it, that it means on what it means to, to count the cost of the cross. And again, men, I ask you today, are, have you been counting the cost of the cross in your everyday life? Are you willing to be able to choose Jesus even if it means being ostracized at work? Are you willing to be able to choose Jesus even though it may mean that your family may ostracize you? Are you willing to be able to choose Jesus and what it means to be able to follow him knowing that you have to put all your hopes and dreams aside and ask him the direction and the way that he wants you to go rather than the direction that you want to go? That's what it means to be able to count the, cross, count the cost of the cross, to be able to follow Jesus, to be willing to be able to die, to suffer, and to be able to go through these things just as Jesus went through. The final cost that we see is the cost of materialism. In verse 33, Jesus talks about how no one can follow him without giving up all of your possessions. What in the world does this mean? Does this mean that to follow Christ, you have to sell every single thing that you have? We'll look at Jesus and the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26, we see the interaction of Jesus with the rich young ruler. He's talking to the rich young ruler, and he's talking about how the rich young ruler says he's kept all the commandments, he's done all these things, and Jesus has said, fantastic, that's great. Now go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And what does the Bible say? That rich young ruler went away sad. So does that mean that the guys who were standing around and maybe hearing this conversation, if they all of a sudden sold all of their money and gave it to the poor, does that mean that they had salvation? No. But what Jesus is getting here to is the matter of the heart. Are you willing to say that Jesus is the boss, the master of all that you own? Man, that's tough. We have this innate desire within us to be providers, to be uh, people to be able to provide for our family, to provide for others that we are in relationship with, to help uh, and, to, and to be on the forefront uh, of that type of a need type meeting. But when you follow Christ, you give that up. You give that up. And what that means is, that doesn't mean that you have to go and sell everything that you have. But what that does mean when you follow Christ, that you obey his commands regarding money. And yes, that means the tithe. <laughs> because what is the tithe? Does God need your 10%? Does God need your 10%? Does this church need your 10%? I'm going to tell you right now, no. 
but hear me. Don't go tell pastor. Will told us that this church doesn't need our tithe. Don't go tell pastor that. I'll be so fast called into his office, into John Mark's office, I, my, literal, my head will literally spin, and I will probably go all, you know, exorcist or whatever in there because it'll, they'll jerk me in there so fast. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's more of a test of our hearts. It's more of a test of our hearts. Because it's saying, are you willing to give and allow God to have control of your possessions? It starts with the tithe. And the tithe is something that you bring to the house of God to enable the ministry that's going on in the community and around the world. But God doesn't need that. The Bible tells us he owns cattle on a thousand hills and all this other kind of stuff that goes beyond anything that we can imagine from the standpoint of wealth. You know, they, the Bible tells us that Solomon and all of his wealth and all of his splendor and everything else, his beauty and his wealth could not even compare, you know, to the flowers and the lilies in the field. But what it does mean is that we've got to be willing to be able to say, Jesus, you have the ability to be able to say where my money goes. Does that mean that Jesus gets to say whether we get to spend money on our next Netflix account? or to be able to provide for kids who are in need of school supplies for that month so that they can go to school and their family to be able to hear a gospel in a fun with the sun event. Yes. Does that mean sometimes that the Lord will say and rise up a vision within his church to be able to say the Lord is leading us and our leadership and our, and every, and our uh, deacons and our church staff and our church uh, trustee board and everybody has just really believed that the Lord is leading us to be able to build a chapel and expand education space and that we need to do this to be able to reach more people and be a greater light in the community. Does that mean that God has the ability to be able to come in and tell us you need to give to be able to support that ministry? Yes, he does. Now, he may tell some to give more. He may tell some to give less. But the whole idea is, is that we give the Lord permission to tell us where our money goes. That's the cost of materialism. We are not in control. The Lord is. And that also means that when we're faced with needs and wants, that our trust is in him, not in our ability to be able to meet our own materialistic needs is we look for him to provide, and then as we go, we're looking for ways that he may provide. He may use something like financial peace. He may use something like some other type of Dave Ramsey program. He may use some type of um, uh, investment opportunity to be able to help you to be able to uh, meet needs and be able to grow uh, your por portfolio, not to be able to make you into some person that's all that, but so that he can use you to be able to glorify himself and bless others in the name of Christ. That's what it means to count the cost of materialism. That's why Jesus said to that widow that came and gave the might when the other gave the big you know, gift in the Bible. That's why Jesus said when that lady gave the penny that she gave more than that rich guy could ever give because she was willing to surrender it all to Jesus, and that rich man wasn't cost of materialism. So today, as we conclude here within these next few minutes, 
What happens if the conditions and the costs of discipleship are not kept? What happens as we're going through this process of sanctification? What if we are not constantly understanding and giving of ourselves to Christ, denying self, being dead to ourselves and our ways, and being alive to him and his ways? What if that's something that we're not doing? Well, Luke 34 and 35 says this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. One of the things we don't realize here, men, is how salt was valued in the ancient world. Salt in the ancient world and in the Middle East world of this time was a very, very, very valuable commodity. In fact, it was so valuable that part of a Roman soldier's pay was paid in salt. We have an English word that has derived from that, from that Latin for salt and everything else, salary. Okay? Salary derives from salt. Okay? Salt was very, very valuable. Okay, have you ever heard the phrase, not worth his salt? That guy's not, not worth his salt? That's where all that phrase comes from as well, about how important salt was in the ancient world. Salt preserves, it purifies, it gives flavor. Salt in the Middle East of this day and time can, came from the Dead Sea, but it wasn't pure salt like we have today. Pure salt doesn't lose its saltiness and things. But the salt of that day came from the Dead Sea. It contained impurities, and unlike our modern-day pure salt, salt in Jesus' time could very well lose its flavor, especially if it came in contact with the earth or any type of, uh, of uh, dirt or any of that other type uh, uh, of stuff. And Jesus had just told his disciples earlier in Matthew 5. Now, those of you who don't know what the synoptic gospels are, Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, mainly synonyms because they're basically describing some of the same events and things that are going on in a very similar timeline. John kind of does something a little bit different with how he does and writes uh, the gospel, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels so that we know earlier on in Matthew that Jesus told the disciples that they were salt of the earth and believers do aspects of salt for the world that they live in. They preserve they flavor, they heal. But when a disciple loses his Christian witness, his Christian character, he is good for nothing and brings disgrace to Christ by being walked on and over by others. Jesus was really serious about this, guys, about using this aspect and this illustration of salt. He ended it with the phrase that means you better be listening and you better understand. He who has ears, let him hear. You better be listening and you better understand. So men today, my question for you is this. How's your film study going in your life? When's the last time that you had a heart-to-heart film study with the Lord? When's the last time that you prayed and asked him, Lord, how am I in the cost of hate? Am I truly loving you more than I love these other things that I have in my life? Jesus, how am I doing with the cost of the cross? Am I willing to be shamed, be willing to be made fun of, be willing to die 
for you. That's the cost of the cross. Jesus, am I truly understanding and paying the cost of materialism? Am I truly living my life, giving you permission to be the Lord over all my finances, even if that means I have to obey you and lose whatever financial security that I may have in this world? They're high-cost men, but the Bible tells us many benefits of following Christ. Purpose and meaning in life, the abundant life, the best life that there is to live on, on this earth. Always having someone who will never do you wrong and never leave you and being able to spend an eternity in heaven when you die. The benefits far outweigh the costs. But we forget that sometimes. So men, are you willing to pay the costs? And are you daily realizing that these costs are right there in front of you each and every day? Are you making a conscious effort to pay those costs and follow Christ and trust him with every aspect of your life? Do some film study, guys. I challenge you this week. Pray over these aspects. Pray over this passage. Ask the Lord to be able to help you be more like him as we begin this new part of this year. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you that they're here today, and I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you will help us all to be able to do this film study this checkup to be able to see how well that we're doing. Father, if there's any area of our life that does not measure up, Father, please bring that to our mind. Uh, help us to be able to ask for forgiveness and then ask you for strength and understanding about what we need to do to live more closely in line on what it means to be called a little Christ, a Christian, someone who's becoming more and more like you each and every day. Not for the purpose of taking away our freedom, but to enable us to experience the best life that there is to live on this earth, and that's in right relationship with you, following your ways. Lord, we give this time to you. Help us. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.